peoples have come to a lecture on Thomas Taylor Platonist for he is <coughs> certainly not well known to this day in this country and I doubt if there's any university in England who has ever heard of him or who's still less has his, any of his work on their syllabus. So here you are and uh, this is a wonderful thing and this lecture is in the series entitled Paradigms of Reality <coughs> and the paradigm of reality which I shall be speaking of in the name of Thomas Taylor is of course the perennial wisdom of which John has just spoken, the Platonic, Neoplatonic tradition of which I hope Temenos can call itself a worthy successor. And I am very uh, delighted this evening that uh, 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 Tim, uh, uh, sorry, I forgot second name. Tim Addy is here because Tim Addy is performing the heroic uh, task of reissuing the entire works of Thomas Taylor under the auspices of the Prometheus Trust. Uh, I think in cooperation with the Platonic Guild. So Thomas Taylor, who has again and again been consigned to oblivion, is again being made accessible at this time of the turning of the tide. So I don't see Tim Eddy, but he's somewhere here. I hope a number of, there you are, <laughs> a number of you will buy from him some of the Prometheus Trust publications, which are really very splendid, very beautifully edited and done. And so uh, we are, Terminos, I hope, represents the uh, perennial wisdom. That is what we would like to represent adequately. Um, we do our best. <coughs> If you have read English literature at any university in this country, whether at Oxford or Cambridge or one of the newer schools, it is not likely that Thomas Taylor, the English pagan, received any mention on the syllabus. If in America you may well have heard of him as a main influence and source of the transcendentalist movement on Emerson and Bronson Alcott, for whom his translations and commentaries on the works of Plato, Plotinus, and the Neoplatonic writers of the, the Alexandria School <coughs> were sacred books. As the first translator of the complete works of Plato, Aristotle, and great parts of Plotinus into English, one might have supposed that the world of classical scholarship owed him thanks. On the contrary, the establishment of his day turned on him in unanimous condemnation, consigning him to oblivion, from which nevertheless he has again and again risen triumphant. For his works have been the treasuries of poets of the imagination, from Blake and Coleridge to W.B. Yeats and George Russell. Some of Taylor's writings were republished by the Theosophical Society in the turn of the century, and at present his complete works are in process of republication by the Prometheus Trust, founded in 1988 
with the support of the Platonic Guild, as I've said. The Trust gives as its reason for this ambitious project that Taylor's <coughs> philosophical understanding of the principles enshrined in the writings of Plato, Proclus, Plotinus, and others is unparalleled in recent times. Taylor was indeed more than a translator. He was himself a profound philosopher. He dedicated his works to the sacred majesty of truth, echoing the words of Plotinus that there is nothing higher than the truth. Taylor's task, as he saw it, was a restoration of the Platonic theology as the nearest we can come to knowledge absolute. Taylor's understanding of the word Platonism was a broad one. In his essay on the mysteries of Eleusis and Dionysus, he, he writes, as to the philosophy by whose assistance these mysteries are developed, it is coeval with the universe itself. And however its continuity may be broken by opposing systems, it will make its appearance at different periods of time, as long as the sun himself shall continue to illuminate the world. This unchanging wisdom has since been called the perennial philosophy, a term first used by the Renaissance scholar Agostino Stucco, I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly, 1497 to 1548. The notion of a universal wisdom was current among the Renaissance Platonists and was especially associated with Gemistoth Plethon, Greek delegate at the Council of Florence in 1438. Thomas Taylor called himself the modern Plethon, and it seems likely that in doing so, he was thinking especially of this aspect of Plethon's part in reintroducing the Platonic philosophy into the current of European thought. This perennial wisdom was particularly associated with the Platonic philosophy. That sublime wisdom, according to Taylor, first arose in the colleges of the Egyptian priests and flourished afterwards in Greece, which was there cultivated by Pythagoras under the mysterious <coughs> veil of number, by Plato in the graceful dress of poetry, and was systematized by Aristotle as far as it could be reduced to scientific order, which, after becoming in a manner extinct, shone again in its pristine splendor among the philosophers of the Alexandrian school, was learnedly illustrated with Asiatic luxuriancy by Proclus, was divinely explained by Iambicus, and profoundly delivered in the writings of Plotinus. Indeed, the works of this last philosopher are particularly valuable to all who desire to penetrate into the depths of the divine wisdom. Emerson and the American transcendentalists, who were Taylor's most devoted followers during the 19th century, saw Taylor himself as a link in the golden chain of platonic successors. Taylor came to philosophy in the way Plato himself advocates, by way of mathematics. At the age of 23, he published a work on the elements of, the, of a new method of reasoning in geometry applied to the rectification of the circle. 
But his challenge to the materialist philosophy was issued when, at the age of 29, he published his paraphrased translation of Plotinus Ennead 1, Book 6, Concerning the Beautiful. Uh. <coughs> <coughs> Ennead 1, Book 6, Concerning the Beautiful which uh, is, by the way, about to be reissued in the facsimile series published by the uh, Wordsworth Trust at Grasmere, Jonathan Wordsworth series, and he's just about to publish to reissue a facsimile edition of Thomas Taylor's Concerning the Beautiful. And uh, so it will be available. It's, it's a very remarkable work in itself and for his presentation of it and for its influence of course on the romantic poets who all seem to have read it. Uh, it's time the world read again something concerning the beautiful which of course is scorned and avoided and ridiculed by uh, everyone really, poets, painters, um, and, and, of course, society as a whole, which is very against the beautiful in all its works. So, I hope it will have a new lease of life. The introduction notes to this work are a manifesto, a challenge, certain to be resented by the defenders of the materialist cause, but no less certain to stir the hearts of the poets and all devotees of the imagination. Seldom can a challenge so radical have been issued in the small print of a footnote. Addressing the platonic part of his readers, Taylor writes, with respect to true philosophy, you must be sensible that all modern sects are in a state of barbarous ignorance, for materialism with its attendant sensuality have darkened the eyes of many with the mists of error and are continually strengthening their corporeal tie, and can anything more effectively dissipate this increasing gloom than the discourses composed by so sublime a genius, pregnant with the most profound conceptions and everywhere full of intellectual light? Can anything so thoroughly destroy the phantom of false enthusiasm as establishing the real object of the true let us then boldly enlist ourselves under the banner of Plotinus and by his assistance vigorously repel the encroachments of error, plunge her dominions into the abyss of forgetfulness and disperse the darkness of her baneful night. For indeed, there never was a period which required so much philosophic exertion or such vehement contention from the lovers of truth on all sides, nothing of philosophy remains but the name, and this has become the subject of the vilest prostitution, since it is not only engrossed by the naturalist, chemist, and anatomist, but is usurped by the mechanic in every trifling invention and made subservient to the lucre of traffic and merchandise. There cannot surely be a greater proof of the degeneracy of the times than so unparalleled a degradation and so barbarous a perversion of the terms. <coughs> and he concludes with a call to action. 
Rise up, my friends, and victory will be ours. The foe is indeed numerous, but at the same time feeble, and the weapons of truth in the hands of vigorous union descend with irresistible force and are fatal wherever they fall. Taylor's words have indeed a contemporary ring. To a genius indeed truly modern, with whom the crucible and the air pump are alone the standards of truth, such an attempt must appear ridiculous in the extreme. With these, nothing is real but what the hand can grasp or the corporeal eye perceive, and nothing useful but what pampers the appetite or fills the purse. I wish I'd written it myself. <laughs> In the face of triumphalist science, such a challenge might well seem absurd, but Taylor challenged the supremacy of the authority of Bacon, Newton, and Locke, of what Yeats calls the three provincial centuries, in the name of the philosophic mainstream of European civilization, of Pythagoras and Plato, Plotinus and the Neoplatonic philosophers who succeeded him. He wrote in an age of revolution, but it is not what revolution destroys, but what knowledge creates and retains that sustains civilization. Far from being a learned recluse, Taylor was from the first embattled, perhaps more than that of any other man of his time. His work marks the beginning of the turning of the tide of materialism. Edgar Wint, author of the Pagan Mysteries of the Renaissance, whose theme is the Platonic revival in 15th century Italy, described him as an integral part of the rise of the soul against mechanism, empiricism, and rationalism, the dynamic impulse of the Romantic movement. Taylor was born in 1758, a year younger than Blake and older than Flaxman. His publications appeared between 1780 to within a year of his death in 1835. His father was a Methodist and hoped his son would become a nonconformist minister. Debarred from Oxford and Cambridge, where only members of the Church of England were admitted, Taylor was intended for Aberdeen University, having received his schooling at St. Paul's School, whose reputation in the teaching of the classics was high, a ju judgment not shared by the young Platonist who scorned the entire educational establishment. However, he never went to any university, but instead married for love. Apparently, the marriage remained a happy one, whereby the young philosopher cut himself off from the established ways to a career, and the young couple started life in extreme poverty. Taylor first worked as an underpaid schoolmaster, then for five years at a bank, from which he was rescued by an appointment as assistant secretary to the Society for the Encouragement of the Arts, Manufactures and Commerce, an ironic turn of fate that placed him in the service of a society whose aim was the promotion of these utilitarian sciences Taylor so scorned.
As an anti-clerical, Taylor found himself of necessity among many of the liberals and revolutionaries of his time. Mary Wollstonecraft, French translator and editor of Johnson, the left-wing publisher, whose shop was in St. Paul's Churchyard, was a, uh, in, uh, uh, whose shop in St. Paul's Churchyard was a meeting place for left-wing intellectuals, was at one time his lodger. Mary knew Blake, who illustrated two of her books, married Godwin, and was by him the mother of Shelley's wife. Taylor himself, as a Platonist, was a supporter of aristocratic government and the caste system, and in later life seems to have moved away from these wild friends among whom he was thrown in his early years. His translations of Plato were published through the patronage of the liberal eccentric Charles Eleventh Duke of Norfolk, whom Taylor must have come to know as president of the Society of the Arts in 1794, and most of these fine volumes lay unsold in the library of Arundel Castle. Nevertheless, it was during the revolutionary and exciting years of the 18th century that Taylor's most significant work was done. A well-known figure of his time, he was an easy and willing target for satire and appears in a, no a novel by the elder Disraeli and is Mr. Mystic in Thomas Love Peacock's novel, Melancourt. Taylor gave 12 lectures on the philosophy Platonic philosophy in the house of Flaxman, or rather, I'm sorry, the Platonic theology is rather different. The, on the Platonic theology in the house of Flaxman, and since Blake and Flaxman were close friends and fellow Swedenborgians, it is more than likely that Blake and Taylor met at this time. This I had long surmised from the evidence of Blake's readings of works of Taylor and my identification of the theme of the so-called Arlington Court Tempera as Porphyry's De Antro Ninfarum, <coughs> translated by Taylor. Evidence that at one time the two were friends was published in 1972 by James King in Studies in Romanticism. The evidence lies in a notebook written by William George Meredith, son of George Meredith the architect, 1760 to 1831, and nephew of William George Meredith, who was Thomas Taylor's patron. In his notebook, the younger namesake of William George Meredith recounts anecdotes evidently originating with the older generation, including one which provides clear evidence that Blake and Taylor were at one time on friendly terms. He tells of Blake at Taylor's house, where Taylor was giving him a lesson in mathematics on the fifth proposition of Euclid, which proved that the two angles at the base of an isosceles triangle must be equal. And I quote, Taylor was going through the demonstration, but was interrupted by Blake exclaiming, oh, never mind that. What's the use of going to prove it? Why, I can see it with my eyes that it is so. <laughs> Unexpectedly enough, it is probable, probably on Blake that Taylor's influence was deepest, both in his use of mythological themes and, more fundamentally, in confirming Blake's understanding of the Platonic teaching that mental things are alone real. Very unpopular idea at that time. 
What was at issue in Taylor's writings was nothing less than a reversal of the premises of a civilization of Western materialism as it has gradually risen to a virtual unchallenged orthodoxy of belief. The turn of the century was indeed a time of revolution, but while Republican France sought to instill the goddess reason in the cathedral of Notre Dame, a change of values more fundamental was coming about, the discovery of the inner universe of imagination. Blake, greatest of the romantic prophets of the imagination as the god within, the divine humanity, the true man, gave eloquence to a vision essentially platonic, or rather in Taylor's sense, that philosophy co-evil with the universe itself. Blake wrote, I rest not from my great task to open the eternal worlds, to open the immortal eyes of man inward into the worlds of thought, into eternity, ever expanding in the bosom of God, the human imagination. In an entry in Public Characters, 1798, it is on record that Taylor, presumably in his late teens, had begun to read Newton's principles, but he soon closed the book in disgust, exclaiming, Newton is indeed a great mathematician, but no philosopher. Taylor, in his introduction to Concerning the Beautiful, had already clearly defined the issue which his work, his Herculean labors as a translator and editor of Plato during the next years, 40 years, was to serve. And he, this is Taylor. To follow matter through its infinite divisions and wander in its <coughs> dark labyrinths is the employment of the philosophy in vogue. <laughs> But surely the energies of intellect are more worthy of our concern than the operations of sense. Where is the microscope which can discern what is smallest in nature? Where the telescope that can see at what point in the universe wisdom first began? Since there is no portion of matter which may not be the subject of experiments without end, let us betake ourselves to the regions of mind where all things are bounded in intellectual measure, where, anything is per where everything is permanent and beautiful, eternal and divine. Yeats described the English as babes in philosophy and possessing the poorest philosophical literature in Europe. Only the idealist philosopher Barclay, who himself was deeply influenced by the Hermetica, had presented the argument for the primacy of mind. And the prevailing incomprehension of his work is clear in Dr. Johnson's pronouncement, thus I refute him, as he kicked a stone unanswerable. But matter is less solid in our time, elusive, as Taylor had descri described it, a quantum reality that has reduced the atoms of Democritus to intangible fields of force. One may say that matter has become dematerialized. Dr. Johnson could no longer refute Taylor by kicking, partly by kicking a stone. Taylor quotes a passage from Plotinus from Ennead 6, uh, three, which 
begins, since matter is neither soul nor intellect nor life nor form nor reason nor bound, but a certain indefiniteness, indefiniteness, nor yet capacity for what can it produce. Since it is foreign from all these, it cannot merit the appellation of being, but is deservedly called non-entity, the mere shadow and imagination of bulk and the desire of subsistence, abiding without station of itself invisible and avoiding the desire of him who wishes to perceive its nature. Hence, when one perceives it, it is then in a manner present, but cannot be viewed by him who strives intently to behold it, so that it is a phantom, neither abiding nor yet able to fly away, capable of no one denomination and possessing no power from intellect, but constituted in the in the the defect and shade, as it were, of all real being. Hence, too, in each of its vanishing appellations, it eludes our search. For we think of it as something great, it is in the meantime small. If of something more, it becomes less. And the apparent being <coughs> which we meet within its image is non-being, and as it were, a flying mockery. So that the forms that appear in matter are merely ludicrous shadows falling upon shadows as in a mirror where the position of a thing is different from its situation and which, though apparently full of forms, possesses nothing real and true. But things which enter and depart from matter are nothing but imitations of being and semblances flowing about a formless semblance. This is really astonishing that Plotinus was able to de describe matter in a way that has never been uh, approached until this recent science, of course, does perceive that matter is a, cannot be pinned down as a reality uh, apart from the observing mind. And uh, that is a, a, a point of view that was entirely unknown to the materialists at the end of the 18th century. With his usual penetration, Blake follows the argument of Plotinus when he wrote, nature has no outline, but imagination has. Nature has no tune, but imagination has. Nature has no supernatural and dissolves. Imagination is eternity. Blake had a wonderful way of getting to the point and summing it up in this unforgettable terms. Indeed, Taylor's influence on Blake deserves a book in itself. With all his visionary insight, it is Taylor's metaphysical exactness of thought that forms the foundation of Blake's luminous aphorisms. Blake's very vocabulary reveals his debt. His mythological figure, Enion, matter, is clearly named from Taylor's non-ends. She is an ever-evanishing phantom pursued into her labyrinths. The use of this word is explicable only in terms of Taylor's vocabulary as used in such passages as this commentary on Bacon. The conceptions of the experimental philosopher who expects to find truth in the labyrinths of matter are not much more elevated than those of the vulgar, for he is ignorant that truth is the most splendid of all things, that she is the constant companion of divinity and proceeds together with him through the universe. This delusive phantom, however, the, the man of modern science ardently explores, unconscious 
sense that he is running in a fog and darkness and infinite perplexity, and that he is hastening after an object which eludes all detection and mocks all pursuit. Huh? Taylor was engaged in his commentaries of Proclus on during those years when he knew Blake and his circle, Flaxman, Mary Wollstonecraft and George Cumberland. If Sipsop the Pythagorean is uh, Blake's light-hearted, in Blake's light-hearted fantasy, An Island in the Moon is Thomas Taylor, we must conclude that Blake knew Taylor before 1787. It was probably in 1788 that Taylor delivered his 12 lectures on the Platonic <coughs> theology at Flaxman's house. Taylor's long paper on the restoration of the Platonic theology by the late Platonists appears in the second volume of the Commentaries of Proclus. Blake's trap tractate, There is No Natural Religion, is dated 1789. It is therefore more than likely that Blake learnt his cogent arguments against Bacon, Newton and Locke, the natural philosophers, from Taylor. Not in external nature, which for Newton was a great mechanism, to Blake's mind itself is, as for Plato, the ground of reality. As the true method of knowledge is experiment, the true faculty of knowing must be the faculty which experiences this faculty I treat of. Principle one, that the poetic genius is the true man, and that the body or outward form of man is derived from the poetic genius. Later Blake used the word imagination for the innate living principle, the true man, called by Plato in Taylor's translation, intellect. According to Yeats, the mischief began at the end of the 17th century when man became passive before a mechanized nature. That lasted to our own day, with the exception of a brief period when, between Smart's Song of David and the death of Byron, wherein imprisoned man beat upon the door. But why should it matter? whether we hold nature or the perceiving mind to be the ground. Why should it matter? Do not all men see the same world, whatever view we hold, the same sun and moon, trees and people and houses and the rest? What difference can it make whether we hold the object perceived or the perceiver to be the ultimately real? And yet, this is the source of the profound uh, dif divergence of two kinds of civilization, Golden Age and Iron Age, that East and West of which Kipling wrote that never the twain shall meet. Western materialism has created the world of technology, which is worldwide. Inventions and powers amazing enough some useful to life, some destructive, for science in the realm of values is neutral. Indeed, the concept of values simply has no place in the world of science. Yet meanings and values have at all times been the concern of civilization. One might say they are the human kingdom as such, are what makes us human, and in whose absence something dies in us. Is not this inner death the mark of a materialist age? Science deliberately excludes value judgments, making a virtue of objectivity. 
In their absence, the arts become, as Blake foresaw, formless, and at the bottom of the cup is the nihil of despair. And this cup, many of our civilization of material wealth and denial of the spirit have drunk to the dregs. The French metaphysician René Guénon has described modern Western civilization as the reign of quantity, for which reality is attributed only to the measurable. But it is the immeasurable values of spirit, intellect, imagination, life itself, that has at all times been the concern of poets and philosophers, love and beauty, wisdom and joy. Blake's words, everything that lives is holy, take their profound meaning from this context, for the sacred is the supreme experience of value, immeasurable, but in the very nature of life itself. Again, it is Blake who realizes the platonic vision in that well-known passage in which the materialist questions the man of imagination. What it will be questioned when the sun rises? Do you not see a round disk of fire, somewhat like a guinea? Oh, no, no. I see an innumerable company of the heavenly host crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I question not the corporeal or vegetative eye any more than I would question a window concerning a sight. I look through it and not with it. Again, it was Plato who first used the image of looking through, not with the eye, repeated more than once by Blake. It is the living soul or spirit who sees and experiences. Thus, the difference between the two philosophies is nothing less than the difference between life and the absence of life, a living world and a dead world, a mechanism, virtual reality, one might say, hell. Thus it becomes clear why poets, artists, and lovers of wisdom have welcomed Thomas Taylor as a great teacher of the highest wisdom, for the Platonic tradition is nothing less than the great mainstream of the perennial wisdom in European civilization. Taylor's challenge came at a moment when the forces of history were all on the side of materialism and the Industrial Revolution with its future of technology and all things relating to the material world. All that could be called progress in the creation of wealth and advances in all those useful inventions and discoveries that have made possible the standard of living a great many people now enjoy. Uh, last night we heard Edward Goldsmith uh, discoursing on how progress was responsible for almost every ill in our world. And the very word didn't, negates itself. At the same time, the Romantic movement in poetry and the other arts in England and Germany, and in France a great stirring in esoteric studies, was nothing less than a spiritual renaissance. The prophetic voice of William Blake is heard to this day, and the poetry of Coleridge, Shelley, Keats and Wordsworth continue to speak to the soul of England and beyond. 
Are poets, after all, the unacknowledged legislators of the world? The prophetic voice has not been silenced. However, those whom Taylor called the foe were not slow to answer his challenge, as he must have expected, perhaps hoped, for the battle in which he had engaged himself is age-old and fought in every generation that civilization may not sink the great battle lost, Yeats wrote. The works of Taylor, republished by the Theosophical Society, were in Yeats's library. And Mrs. Yeats told me that it was she who brought them there. So that's a word for Mrs. Yeats, well deserved. She too was a student of the Hermetic uh, Order of the Golden Dawn, of course. The Encyclopedia Britannica, 11th edition, puts it on record that Taylor's efforts were unfavorably, even contemptuously received. And admittedly, had Taylor written in a less formidable English, his translations might have been more widely read. Yeats called his style atrocious, and Coleridge, who, as a precocious schoolboy, had included the works of Taylor among his darling studies, wrote that Taylor had translated Proclus from difficult Greek into incomprehensible English. He does not, like McKenna, make Plotinus a delight to read. He even, which might seem equally difficult, makes Apuleius boring, but he does compel attention to the subtleties of ideas. It is on record that he used to say that he had learned Greek rather through Greek philosophy than Greek philosophy through Greek. He was a philosopher rather than a linguist, and his purpose was to make known the Platonic teachings. He himself wrote that, in perusing the works of these great men, the reader must not expect to find the sublimest truths explained in a familiar manner and adapted, like many modern publications, to the meanest of capacities, to what would nowadays be called a wider audience. We hear the phrase every day. <coughs> so Taylor had no great desire for a wider audience. Since Taylor had not been to a university and was in that sense self-taught, it was easy to attack him for his imperfect knowledge of the Greek language. His young friend Thomas Love Peacock has put it on record that he was a mortal foe to Greek accents, treating them with a righteous scorn. This opinion laid him open to the charge of avoiding accents through ignorance. This was certainly not the true reason why he hated them. It was, however, too telling a point for popular writers to neglect. However, the real reason why Taylor was over and over again consigned to oblivion had little to do with Greek breathings. He was challenging received opinion, and that on two fronts. The universities were in the hands of Anglican clergy who were not likely to welcome a restoration of the Platonic theology by a self-taught trespasser in their field who professed polytheism. Taylor treated Christian theology and the natural sciences with equal scorn. The Edinburgh Review of April 1809 announced that the hand of oblivion has passed over him, and what follows reveals very clearly that the attack is in reality a violent rejection of Neoplatonism and those aspects of Plato himself at variance with the theology of the Lowland Scots. 
Taylor is accused of exhibiting Plato as the mortal foe both of reason and of taste, those enthroned values of the Enlightenment. He has not translated Plato. He has travestied him in the most cruel and abominable manner. He has not hallucinated, but covered him over with impenetrable darkness. How so? By adding by way of notes Proclus commentaries. In the character of commentator, Mr. Taylor has scarcely done anything, or indeed proposed to do anything, but to fasten upon Plato the reveries of Proclus and of other philosophers of the Alexandrian school. And finally, how can any reader follow Plotinus without disgust? Here the ghost of John Knox rises to denounce witchcraft and superstitions. Proclus and his school were, without exception, impostors and mountebanks, thaumaturges, parmetier. The names of the current pillars of reason, good taste, Jacob Bryant, Cicero, Horace and Gibbon are invoked as witnesses against the wild, mystical and obscure writings of Proclus and Plotinus. The solemn trifling and impenetrable obscurity of these sages who profess to reveal the system of the universe. To sum up, Taylor was an ass in the first place. Secondly, he knows nothing of the religion of which he is so great a fool as to profess himself a votary. And thirdly, he knew less than nothing of the language about which he is continually writing. So there you have it. Some of you who have noticed the reviews of, for example, Solaris van der Post in the, in the um, popular press will... will Achilles, in which the unfaithfulness of that excellent Grecian's translation of the ethics of Aristotle is inferred from the want of that creeping verbal accuracy which distinguishes his own. Let us give Dr. Gillies a hearing. The nature and scope of my literary labours are so totally different from those of Mr. Taylor that it is not easy to understand how our paths could cross. Utility, common and vulgar utility, above which that sublime author so proudly soars, was my great, or rather my sole, aim. What word could be more calculated to appear to the common man of the first decade of the 19th century than utility? The Edinburgh Review and other journals of the day knew that they could flatter the complacency of ignorance by making their appeal to received opinion. The same is true of every generation of journalists. But so eminent a man of letters as Horace Walpole had less need to disguise his and their real object of hostility, Plato himself. And this is Walpole. Taylor's book was shown to me this summer by one of those wiseacres who call themselves learned men, who told me it was tremendous. I was neither alarmed nor curious, yet, on your ladyship's notice, I borrowed the monthly review and find that the world's future religion is to be founded on a blundered translation of an almost unintelligible commentator on Plato. So much for Proclus. I guess, however, that the religion this new apostle recommends is not a belief in the pantheon of the pagan divinities, but the creed of the philosophers who really did not believe in their idols, but whose metaphysics were frequently as absurd. And yet this half-witted tailor prefers them to Bacon and Locke, who were almost the first philosophers who introduced common sense <coughs> into their writings and were as clear as Plato was unintelligible because he did not understand himself. So much for Plato. 
The Romantic poets re received the Neoplatonic teachings with delight, equal to the hostility they aroused in the men of the materialist majority. Coleridge, by way of contrast with the Edinburgh Review, Walpole and the rest, wrote this of Proclus. The most beautiful and orderly development of this philosophy, which endeavours to explain all things by an analysis of consciousness and builds up a world in the mind out of the materials furnished by the mind itself, is to be found in the Platonic theology of Proclus. He went so far as to make Proclus the touchstone of a capacity for metaphysics. Let a prepared scholar, so he wrote in the margin of Taylor's Proclus, attentively peruse chapter 6, book 1, concerning the essence of mathematical genera and species, if possible in the original Greek, and the result in his mind will inform him whether nature has intended him for metaphysical research. If I have any conception of sublimity arising from a majestic vision of tranquil truth, it will be found in this chapter. What to Coleridge was beautiful and orderly was to Walpole nonsense, and for the Edinburgh Review, impenetrable darkness. When we really read that a philosopher is unintelligible, may we not ask to whom? The clue to Coleridge's love of Proclus is already given in an autobiographical passage in a letter written in 1796. As a precocious schoolboy, he had already discovered what was to be the direction of his life. Metaphysics and poetry and facts of mind, i.e. the accounts of all the strange phantasms that ever possessed your philosophy dreamers from Thoth the Egyptian, Coleridge is referring to the Hermetica, to Taylor the English pagan are my darling studies. Lowe's, Livingston Lowe's, in that delightful book, The Road to Xanadu, on the sources of Coleridge's imagery in Kubla Khan, is without comprehension of the nature of this mode of thought. And to Lowe's, Neoplatonism, one of the strangest tendencies which marked the tumultuous exit of the century, one of the curious beads on Coleridge's string, rather than the string upon which the beads are strung. Robert Blakey, in his History of the Philosophy of Mind, 1888, gives a generous account of Taylor. Mr. Taylor conceives that all which the moderns possess of moral science consists of nothing else than small and broken, though splendid, fragments of the great Platonic union of the universe. He therefore, with a contempt which appears narrow and somewhat arrogant, rejects acceptance of and declines all attention to the dark and partial systems of modern writers, not, however, out of a deficiency of powers of judging of them, but from a conceived previous fullness and redundancy of loftier and better knowledge. It was inevitable that Taylor should scorn Christian theology as he found it in his time and place, but to do so required a degree of courage or knowledge possessed by few. Coleridge himself retreated into orthodoxy and called Taylor a blind bigot for his objections to Bacon, adding that the modern chemists talk of Bacon. Had Taylor and Blake discussed Bacon, for Blake, with an assurance equal to Taylor's, declared that Bacon's philosophy has ruined England. 
Shelley's so-called atheism was in reality Platonism. He had no need of translations in order to read the Greek, but nevertheless, Taylor had created an intellectual climate in which Shelley's use of Greek myths and themes and his rebellion against Christianity had a context. Through his friendship with Thomas Love Peacock, Shelley must have been well aware of Taylor's subversive ideas and might well have met him. Keats's indebtedness to the Greek revival through the sculptures of the Parthenon frieze brought to England through Lord Elgin uh, is well known, as is Flaxman's enthusiasm for the Portland vase, the Barberini funeral urn brought to England by Sir William Hamilton. Flaxman's enthusiasm was responsible for the Wedgwood replicas, and Erasmus Darwin, friend of the Wedgwoods, included an article in his work, The Botanic Garden, in which it is argued that the figures on the vase are representation of the representations of the Eleusinian mysteries. The vase itself must have been for a time in Blake's studio, for Blake was the engraver of the illustrations included in Darwin's poem. It was Taylor's work on the mysteries of Eleusis and Dionysus that made these known in their full symbolic richness of meaning. It is beyond doubt that Keats's beauty is truth, truth beauty, follows Plotinus' argument in the tractate published by Taylor that the beautiful and the good are the same. Even Wordsworth echoes the Platonic revival when he affirms in, affirms in his most famous ode on the pre, of the pre, affirms the pre-existence of souls. Our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. The soul that rises with us, our life's star, hath elsewhere had its setting and cometh from afar not in entire forgetfulness. This is pure Platonism, for rebirth is contrary to the teachings of Christian theology. Blake's Arlington Court Tempera painting is an illustration of Porphyry's work, translated by Taylor, on the Homeric Cave of the Nymphs. The theme of Porphyry's work and of Blake's painting is the <coughs> descent and return of souls in the cycle of rebirth. Blake's young friends, the Shoreham Ancients, so named themselves in distinction from the moderns, and Samuel Palmer described himself as a Platonist. In a letter written from Pompeii to his sister-in-law in 1838, he recalls evenings spent in reading what can only have been Taylor's translation of Plato. Blessed also will be the mind informed with Plato. Would that mine were so. The very antithesis of the literary impudence, dandyism and materialism, with which most of the modern periodicals tend imperceptibly to imbue the mind. If ever I am to open a book again and not to live a fool and die a brute, may I open once more the divine pages of Plato in some happy Grove Street evening with you and dear Annie, his wife, by my fireside. But it is too good to be hoped for in this world, except with Euripides in his cave, too deep to hear the rumble of her rubbish carts. Um, well, how is the time going? Because I think I'd have to cut a little bit. Eight what? Eight o'clock. Okay. Well, I think I'll cut out what I put in about the, the American transcendentalists, who, of course, were 
uh, they valued the writings of Taylor, took them to America. They were in the Library of Fruitlands. They were the foundation of Emerson's uh, work on uh, the first country which really understood the, uh, <coughs> that all religions are one and that all are versions of this one sublime truth was Emerson and, of course, Bronson Alcott. And there was a journal uh, published for eight years called by T Thomas Johnson, I think he was, uh, entitled The Platonist, uh, which published a great deal of Taylor's work. And it really got into America long before it got into, into England. And, of course, the same thing is happening at the present time, I'm afraid. While 19th century England was devoting its best energies to the Industrial Revolution, in New England the seeds of Platonism fell on more fertile soil. Oh, that is still more about the, uh, about the transcendentalists. Um, oh, well, I think I can read that bit. It's not too long. I hope you're not bored. They fell on more fertile soil. Um... The transcendentalist movement in and through the works above all of Emerson and Bronson Alcott, eclectic as, it, eclectic as it was, took as its foundation the platonic philosophy as expounded by Taylor. Emerson was reading Taylor as early as 1826 when he was 23 and continued to do so throughout the next decade at the time in which he was organizing the thought that was to culminate in his nature, 1830. The Bible of, the trans of Transcendentalism. Emerson describes Transcendentalism as a spiritual philosophy, idealist and basically platonic. It was the Transcendentalists who first realized uh, Blake's understanding that all religions are one. Emerson and Alcott both brought back from visits to England as many of Taylor's works as they could find, the Library of Fruitland, seat of their new Eden. Taylor's select works of Plotinus was a volume cherished by Emerson for many years kept within easy reach of his writing table and which he marked and indexed as a favorite possession. He saw Taylor as above all a man of imagination and wrote of him, there are also prose poets. Thomas Taylor was a Platon. Thomas Taylor the Platonist, for instance, is really a better man of imagination, a better poet, or perhaps I should say a better feeder to a poet than any man between Milton and Wordsworth. And of Plotinus he wrote, wonderful seemed to me as I read Plotinus, the calm and grand air of these few cherubs, great spiritual lords who have walked the world, they of the old religion, dwelling in a worship that makes the sanctities of Christianity parvenu and merely popular. Inspired by Emerson and Alcott, Thomas M. Johnson for eight years edited The Platonist, a journal devoted chiefly to the dissemination of the Platonic philosophy in all its phases. 
At the time when the tide of Platonism was ebbing in America, Taylor began to be rediscovered in England by the Theosophical Society, notably by G.R.S. Mead, translator, translator of the Hermetica, Thrice Greatest Hermes, 1906, Fragments of a Faith Forgotten, Gnostic Writings. Mead, like Taylor, understood scholarship not as an end, but as a means to making available precious knowledge. His Orpheus, The Theosophy of the Greeks, published by the Theosophical Society, is largely based on Taylor's introduction to the mystical hymns of Orpheus. In his foreword to the Theosophical Society's edition of Taylor's Select Works of Plotinus, 1896, Mead paid him tribute. It is true that the perfected scholarship of our own time demands a higher standard of translation than Taylor presents, but what is true of his critics then is true of his critics today. Though they may know more Greek, he knew more Plato. Taylor was more than a scholar, he was a philosopher in the platonic sense of the word. The Irish Renaissance was itself rooted in the Theosophical movement, especially through A.E., George Russell, the poet and mystic. A.E. compared the literary Irish literary movement to the Transcendentalist movement in America. Yeats himself was for a time a member of the Theosophical Society, and Mead's books were in his library, including his edition of Taylor's Plotinus. Stephen McKenna gave the Irish literary movement its, his beautiful translation of the Enneads of Plotinus. There was no longer the same need for Taylor's translations as earlier in the century, but he was nevertheless honoured and A.E. called him the uncrowned king. With the Theosophical Society came the first great influx of Oriental philosophy, above all from India. Yeats who in the course of his life scanned the entire horizon of sacred knowledge then available in the world. In Yeats, there shouldn't be a who in that sentence. From the no theater of Japan to Sufi and Arabic sources and the oral tradition of Western Ireland as a member of the Magical Society of the Golden Dawn, he studied mainly the Western esoteric tradition based in Rosicrucianism and Kabbalah. Near the end of his life, he returned full circle to India and with his teacher Sri Purohit Swami made his beautiful translations of the ten principal Upanishads. Purohit Swami's translation of the Bhagavad Gita is dedicated to Yeats. Taylor had done his work and prepared the way for the platonic river which had fertilized Europe from the, for more than 2,000 years to become a tributary to the great mainstream of Indian philosophy. The men of the new age in this century look not to Platonism but to India for enlightenment, whether through the Vedic tradition itself or through Buddhism, which is itself a product of that mainstream. Sanskrit, not Greek, is likely to be seen as the sacred language of the future, the key to spiritual wisdom. 
Taylor himself would surely have acquiesced in this merging of the platonic tributary into the great sacred river of India. But Taylor remains the principal source in England of that rise of soul against intellect now beginning in the world, of which Yeats saw himself a part. Yeats venerated Plotinus no less than did Taylor himself, and above poetry he held spiritual wisdom when he wrote, for it is time to bid the muse go pack, choose Plato and Plotinus for a friend. And I will end with Yeats's poem, The Delphic Oracle Upon Plotinus. <clears throat> Behold that great Plotinus swim, buffeted by such seas. Bland Radamanthus beckons him, but the golden race looks dim. Salt blood blocks his eyes. Scattered on the level grass or winding through the grove, Plato there and Minos pass, there stately Pythagoras and all the choir of love. Uh, well, I don't know what the time is, and if there's time for questions, Stephen will tell us. There you are. There is time. Well, I hope some of you will be asking questions. Could I ask something, Kathy? Something I never understood, Alan Ginsberg said he didn't understand it either. What did Blake mean when he said there's no natural religion? Oh, he meant, he meant deism. He was speaking of the deist religion, which holds God to be the creator of a, of, of a universe that is a mechanism in, in the Newtonian sense. So it is a machine and goes of its own accord and, and that it has been made by God. I'm afraid that is rooted in the, in the Hebrew creation, is that God created heaven and earth separate from himself. Whereas, of course, in the Eastern, in the Oriental religions, um, God is is uh, his life lives in the universe. The the universe itself is the is the uh, epiphany of the divine life. And Blake held that view when he talked about uh, uh, the divine humanity, Jesus, the imagination. The world is created by the imagination, according to Blake, as it is in, in the Vedic tradition by the what is called the self, a term which is finding its way back into, into Western thought, partly by way of C.G. Jung, of course. He uses the word the self. I think we're beginning to grow up to the point when we can understand these things. I don't think Dr. Johnson's view is very convincing anymore. I don't think we've really... No, it was just a bully. Yes. I don't think it's difficult to understand because deism was the... In fact, the Church of England was, was not a mystical church. If, if Taylor had had any knowledge of the, uh, uh, the theology of Aquinas and the, and the scholastics, he might have been a little more charitable to Christianity than he was. But as it was, he totally rejected the the deism of the Anglicans of his day. I wondered if you knew of, um, if you could direct us to a, um, a source for any... <coughs> I'm awfully sorry, but I'm very deaf. Do you mind shouting at me? I wondered if you could um, point, if you knew of a source that um, indicates... Um, uh, 
connection between um, Neoplatonic philosophers and Indian uh, sort of Eastern religious ideas, if there's um, a book that explores any real evidence of, um, you know, even um, written things that Neoplatonic philosophers might have known about. Ah, well, uh, I'm not a classical scholar, but uh, I have read a book by someone called Drew, Drew in Cambridge, I can't remember its title, which is the... John, you can probably answer that No, question. I can't, Cathy. You can't, can't, because there have been, uh, there have been uh, at, at all times, currents of, of knowledge coming in from India. Well, Alexander the Great, for one, it is known that he brought a, a Brahmin back to, uh, he was in his, in his, when he took his army to northern India. Uh, but there is evidence that uh, Plato, Socrates, that it, it was earlier than that, that Plato himself might have had. Have you heard that, the, John? The Eastern philosophies and such as the Western philosophies just simply different expressions of the same yeah. truth, the truth is always one. So well, never yes. speak, they're good for their philosophies, they'll be basically the same. <laughs> That's quite true, but the, you see, the Abrahamic religions take a different view. Uh, they all see uh, the, the, the universe as an object made by God, not as a, a living <laughs> manifestation of God. But of course, we are of the Indo-European tradition, the, the, the Europeans and the Indians. The, uh, the Aryan tradition is common to us both, so uh, the Druids were said to be very close to, the, to that tradition also, which perhaps explains why Celtic Christianity uh, retains something of that, and Ireland has always been. Uh, yeah, please shout at me. Is, you mentioned Celtic, is panentheism too much of a sort of nitpicking thing? Pantheism, the divinity just suffusing in a unity that you can't distinguish, is pantheism, is it? But Celtic Christianity, isn't it talk of panentheism, that God's energies are streaming in everything? Yeah, I should think so. I, I, I can't remember what panentheism means, but the, these are terms used by Christian theologians. I'm not a Christian, I'm sorry. And, and I think a lot of these distinctions wouldn't exist for uh, the Vedic tradition, you see. But I, I think panentheism is is more permissible than pantheism, isn't it, by that standard? You see, the Lord Krishna says, uh, I am the life of all life in the universe, but this is only one of innumerable universes. I exceed, the divine exceeds any universe created by that divinity. Uh, I can only answer it in terms of, of, of the Vedic thought that I, I, I tend to study. But I think panentheism does rather mean that, doesn't it? Yes. Yes. And that is why you find it in, in, in Celtic Christianity. Yes. yes, I think that would be so. I don't know about the Greek tradition. I think that's probably a little closer also. Yes. The, the whole idea suited the materialist uh, rise of the end of the 18th century. And it's, it suited very well, fitted in beautifully with the materialist philosophy, you see, because God having made the universe as a machine, the, they could go on making dark satanic mills in, in, in the likeness of the machine that they took the universe to be. They didn't see the universe as living. Blake, of course, did. He said everything uh, that the 
behold, every grain of sand breathes forth its joy. Life is in all nature, not only what we call living things, but in everything, in sand, in air, in the whole universe. Blake believed in the living nature of the universe, and I think it's beginning to come back. I think science itself is beginning to, uh, well, I don't know what science is doing, but anyway, I, I, I quite clearly, um, although I studied science in my youth, it doesn't convince me at all to say that the universe is a mechanism. It seems to me absolute rubbish because it's so clearly living. My cat is living, my birds are living, everything is living. Uh, There's a a quotation from uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson in which he says, one day these things would be expressed by poets. He's talking of philosophical things. And he says, the philosopher has reasons for believing. The poet believes. Now, you were talking of of Taylor, and I was intrigued by uh, the Platonic theology. Yes. As a poet, do you believe or do you philosophize? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm not a philosopher. I'm a poet. I've, I've... puzzled my brains over philosophy. I find it very difficult. And Joseph Milne gave us wonderful seminars on uh, on a very difficult passage of Plotinus. I understood it at the time, but I can't tell you a word he said afterwards. But, but the, the sort of glow of thankfulness with which one realizes what is being said by the philosopher is certainly akin to the the wonderful sense of liberation that I think the Romantic poets in particular, there was a great breath of liberation went through them. They feel, oh, it's so it's true after all. And Wordsworth t- t- talks about the uh, the motion in a spirit that moves through all things and Coleridge's wild imagination. And of course, Blake's continual use of, of, as I see it, the the platonic translations of Taylor. I think Blake understood philosophy better than I do. But as for the the sense of of joy that one experiences as a poet, uh, in some of the philosophic writings, I remember a long time ago, at one moment, I tried very hard for many years to make a Christian of myself, and at one point I joined the Catholic Church and was very unhappy. And then I read a book by uh, Dean Ng on Plotinus, and I felt, oh, thank God, you know. And, uh, and uh, then again I, I read the Bhagavad Gita uh, and felt the same expansion of, oh, there's space around one, you know, there, there isn't this sort of uh, um, doctrinaire, dogmatic definition of what one has to believe, a list of things that one must subscribe to. Uh, that is unacceptable to a poet. You can't accept that. But you can. Well, of course, the Bhagavad Gita is poetry also, as indeed are the Gospels. Yes, indeed. Yes. So does one have to be a poet? And Blake, Blake speaks of Jesus, the imagination, and that 
has meaning to me that Jesus has the innate divine humanity, Plato's intellect, the Vedic self, the imagination in Blake's terms, because Blake had no philosophic vocabulary. He had to do his best. But uh, that is what has meaning, that the living imagination is, is the um, source of, of life. It is the divine within us. Uh, however that is stated in whatever terms, that I think always speaks to the poet, because we know it. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, that's how it is. And truth is always itself. And uh, in Plotinus Concerning the Beautiful, that is the title of the tractate. But what the tractate is arguing is not that beauty is truth, truth, beauty, but the, the true and the good are indistinguishable. But of course, beauty, the beautiful is the title of that uh, pamphlet. And I think Keats must have had this wonderful sense of, of, of having understood something when he read Plotinus. One can feel it in Keats's. The, the, uh, imaginative uh, power of his affirmation. Beauty is truth, truth, beauty. That is all we know on earth or need to know. It's very wonderful that this young man should say that. So-called poets nowadays don't say things like that at all. Very few of them. On the contrary. <laughs> they deny beauty and... and uh, Desecrate it. Beauty is, is a word that you cannot use in relation to, to the modern so-called arts, which are expressions of our uh, the last phases of our materialist uh, dying civilization. At least uh, that's how I see it. I shouldn't say things like that. <laughs> it will always be always be reborn because nothing is higher than the truth. That was what Plotinus said, and the perennial philosophy is by definition the truth. Let's say that the perennial philosophy was expressed in the sublime poetry by the Persian classics. I'm sure it was, Shusha. But unfortunately, it's yes. not accessible. Yes, of course. But of course, but the expression uh, is not uh, translatable. But Persia was much influenced by Platonism. But that's it. That's it, yes. Mm -hmm. And also Zoroastrianism. Plato, uh, it could have gone back to Zoroaster, of which there's a remainder in, Platon in Persian particularly, as distinct from Arabic uh, literature, That's isn't it? it. Exactly. Yes. And of course, the the uh, when the uh, Platonic Academy was dismissed from uh, Rome, was it in the time of Constantine, John? Was it Constantine who closed the Platonic Academy in Athens? I don't know, actually. Well, somebody did. Yeah, and they, they, then they moved to, where was it? Was it Persia? I think it was. Yeah. Yes. And what I read was that it was more expressed in a much more straight line for about five centuries. Yes. Through the rule of poetry. And then through philosophical treaties. And of course, the the uh, sacred and the secular were never torn apart in in the way in in the East, in in Persia, and and indeed in India, as they are in the West. 
Baroque Thetis is, is flaked out, has she? And she's gone. Yes. Mm. I know it's very close in here, especially with so many people. It's that time, Stephen. Well, I think one more question, or is that the end? One more question. Uh, I don't know about questions you have raised there. The way that the philosophy we introduced to West, when you think about it, uh, started in Venice in 1460, the first book when they translated from the classical uh, world. So in a way, uh, philosophy came to Europe quite late and introduced uh, to the Western Europe uh, for the last 300 years. But in, uh, in the East, somehow they had more contact and uh, somehow they managed to translate the classical world. Yes, and I'm wonder what was the reason, that, what was the last problem? These, uh, the world, the classical world, didn't come to Europe very easily. Is it because of Christianity? The tradition is always continuous in the East, but Christianity interrupted it, of course. And it only came back with the... Well, there was always an undercurrent within Christianity itself, but the, the great return came, of course, with the the uh, Council of, uh, you know, the Florence, when the Greek um, philosophy became once more known, and Ficino and his school in Florence made their translations of the Greek into Latin. And that was a great influx. And uh, I suppose there was a long period in which it was not present, whereas you had it in the East, and have had a wonderful tradition of poetry. But I think that's, that's all, is it, Stephen? You think we should stop? Mm. Well, thank you all for coming.